When Misasha and I are asked to do anti-bias talks at corporations, you know, we're sometimes asked by the different ERGs if we're comfortable talking about LGBTQ issues. And we answer with our truth, which is that we are both cisgender, heterosexual women who use she, her pronouns. Nobody in our families are LGBTQ. So while the skill set to tackle bias, I think, is sort of related, we prefer to give the floor to people who can speak from firsthand experience and knowledge on this topic. So enter our incredible conversation partner today, Skylar Baylor, who many of you know as Pink Manta Ray. We followed him on IG for years, and his new book, He, She, They, is now on our short list of best books to recommend ever. Yes. Not solely, but especially because the structure of the book is so, so practical, full of the work that he does in a really accessible, non-shaming way based on his lived experience and especially the conversations that he's had, both problematic and otherwise. And, you know, I think we're recording this right after we spoke with him and just being able to be in conversation with him was so meaningful. I know we both feel smarter and more confident, especially when it comes to discussions of gender identity after we read it. And as an added bonus, he fits right into our current multiracial Asian arc because he is mixed race, Korean, and white American. I love it. Now, remember, your LGBTQIA friends are not here to educate you. This is not their job. Skylar has chosen to take on this role to do this work. And so you have to meet him and do the work yourself. You need to listen to this episode, read the book, watch his informative and factual social media videos, and make sure you're doing the work yourself to be a better, more understanding human being. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. We are super excited for this conversation. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Skylar. I use he, him pronouns. I am a Korean American queer transgender man, educator, advocate, and author of the new book, He, She, They, How We Talk About Gender and Why It Matters. Amazing. Thank you. Congratulations on your book launch. Sarah and I talk a lot about how we met, you know, what feels like a million years ago. We have been doing this arc on the Dear White Women podcast about a topic that not many folks have focused on yet, at least not that we're hearing in the podcast space, which is multiracial Asians in America. And as you mentioned in your intro, you are Korean American, you're the child of a Korean mom and a white dad. And you talk in your book about how you always knew you were biracial and like us never felt like you fully fit into the Asian or white spaces. I also love that you put a chapter on intersectionality in your book, because that's so important and something that we talk about a lot on the podcast as well. Could you speak to both the importance of intersectionality in what you talk about in your book and your own experience growing up biracial as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, like you named, being mixed race was something that I think I've always known because it was such an obvious uh, difference in my parents. You know, my mom's a Korean woman and my dad is a white man and they look different. They're perceived different. They're told that they're different. And with either parent, I was never considered like I belonged with them. With my my mom, she was always asked if she was the babysitter, which is a very racist you know trope in many ways. And with my dad, it was always, oh, where did you adopt them from? You know, both me and my brother. So I think, and I'm sure you two can relate to that. I think most mixed kids can to some degree. So that was just such an obvious 
identity for me, or rather, I think it started as a conflict, an obvious conflict, because I was pulled between these two spaces and always asked, are you more white? Are you more Korean? Are you really white? Or are you really Asian? You know, I had to learn very early on how to answer that question and had to learn that my answer wasn't always going to be received and accepted by other people, right? A lot of people argued with me. No, you're not really Asian, Skylar. You can't be really Korean. Oh, you're not white though, right? All of these kinds of responses. And I learned to just say, no, I am. And if you have a different understanding of my ancestry and where my blood comes from, that is a you problem. That is not a me problem. So I think I, I grew actually very early in dignity and empowerment actually in my racial identity because I knew that my history came from my parents. And if anybody disputed it, that was up to them. And that provided actually, this is not your question, but provided a really good framework for when I came out as queer and as a trans person later. I appreciate that so much. And that's what I'm hearing. We interviewed another biracial person who basically said, stop letting other people define you. This is up to us. But I certainly felt that battering growing up about like, well, but I'm not Asian enough and I don't quite fit in here. And I could never name what that was. And a lot of that requires exploring who you are. And that's a question I wanted to ask of you. You know, talk to us about the importance of exploring why we are who we are for all of us right? Especially when it comes to gender. And I think you explained this really beautifully in your chapter on toxic masculinity through the lens of a transgender man. And that story about your calling your dad, daddy, like as a person with kids with, I lost my father almost two decades ago, like that felt so raw and like innocent. And I wanted to ask like, why do you think we all need to think about our relationship with our gender? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that that came across as you read because it was something that was really central to me as I wrote. Trans people are demanded to know our identities and to explain them and to be able to have dissertations to defend them. And even just to be able to say, hey, I'm trans, I have to have had some deep internal thought about who I am and why I am who I am. I think being mixed race requires a bit of the same question, right? Especially if we're going to keep any of our sanity in a world that's constantly racializing everybody. I have to ask myself, who am I, right? And I have to understand who am I. And I think these both experiences and many other ones, but these two, I think are the most obvious, gender and race, have demanded that I really ask myself, who am I and why am I who I am? And how can I defend or at least feel empowered in my identity when other people don't accept it? That endeavor, I think, is one of the most powerful ways to sit grounded in your identity in the face of any kind of bigotry, any kind of hatred, any kind of people trying to deny me my existence. And I've watched so many other people who are not mixed race, who are not POC, who are not trans, not be able to sit in that moment when somebody says, but do you know who you are? And there's a crumple actually that happens. And we're seeing it all across the United States. A lot of people are being asked indirectly and directly to define themselves. And the question it comes in a different way, right? When I say I'm trans to somebody else who is defining their identity based on how society sees men or women, then they're like, oh my God, what does this mean about me, right? A very common question I get is, well, Skylar, if you can just become a man, what does that mean about my manhood? And I'm always like, absolutely nothing, right? My manhood is mine. Yours is yours. But if we define our identities by society's metrics, right? By other people's metrics, then yes, if I say I'm trans, that does sort of disrupt the fabric that created your identity. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's so important for everybody, trans and cis alike, right? Cis being people who are not trans to investigate who they are, not with judgment, not like, who am I, right? No, just can I explore? Can I create space? Can I ask myself why I know I'm not trans or why I know that I'm not queer? Is there space to say maybe I am, right? Not because you have to be, but just making that space to say, who am I here? 
I thank you so much for that, because I think that is a really important question and one that is uncomfortable, right, for people who have never thought about that before. And so I appreciate how you framed that, because it is so central for all of us if we're moving forward and for everyone who's being asked to define or not define themselves right now and why. So many people would say, but why would I want to do that? Because it's extra work. I'm already busy with X, Y, Z. And I feel like one of the things that we've always said on the show is, but we do hard things all the freaking time, right? It doesn't have to be like, there are people who go to the gym. <laughs> on purpose. Right? On an actual purpose. People do things for whatever reason, and we can do hard things. And right now we're being asked to do a lot of hard things. But at the end of the day, we become better people for it. We become more comfortable in our own skin. I think we are more confident. And so there is something in it for every one of us to do the hard thing, to introspect. I mean, I also think, yes, we can do hard things. And when people say, well, but this is hard, I always say, yes, sure, it can be hard and you can still do it. But I actually think that there's a deeper problem that I want to call everybody into, which is we have a you know many anti-everybody bills, honestly, going around the country. And a lot of them are focused on education. About half of them are focused in education. And a lot of them are censoring education, saying we can't talk about these things. We can't explore these things. We can't teach kids about the true breadth of diversity that exists in the world. And what's happening here is we're actually teaching young people that it's not okay to explore, that it's not okay to think expansively about who you are, that all you should do is accept any binary or any assignment of identity. I don't just mean with gender, I mean with anything and take that and live that, right? That's what's quote normal. And what's happening is we are teaching kids that they should be afraid of that discomfort. And I noticed that I think, Ms. Sasha, you said something about like, oh, it's uncomfortable and it's hard. It's uncomfortable and it's hard, but we've also praised, like we've like upraised that discomfort as bad. But kids are great at being confused, actually. The youngest of kids, I talk to you know lots of kindergartners and, and lower schoolers, and they're fine. When they're confused, they're like, I don't get it. And you're like, okay, great, let's talk about it, right? If we can welcome that space of, hey, I don't get it, instead of saying that's bad, we'll actually create a society of people, an adult group of people, hopefully, that are welcoming that discomfort because actually it's not uncomfortable, it's just exploration. So that's another thing that I really think about is we have to stop this way we've organized society that doesn't allow for critical thinking and in fact punishes critical thinking. We need to invite in a society that loves critical thinking because it's the way that we, I honestly, I think it's how we advance as a society at all, right? Is being able to think critically. We're not, you know, our animal siblings. We have really complex thoughts and we should use that capacity. I couldn't agree more. Sarah knows that my favorite thing is critical thinking and building those skills. And I love what you said about children too, because I think that is exactly right. And, and I also quizzed my 11-year-old before yesterday, you know, and I had a copy of your book and I was showing him and, and in school, they started talking about identity and what is identity. And he was really excited by it. All of his classmates were really excited by it and they could understand intersectionality and they could understand identities in a way that adults have a real problem with. And so that gives me hope. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, kids can understand this. And we're doing them a huge disservice by teaching them anything else, but that this is normal, this is natural. These are things that we should be talking about because they're central to who we are. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I want to shift gears for a little bit, but also kind of holding on to that idea of how do we move us all forward, right? Because I want to talk about the queer community for a little bit. And I know in your book, you talk about how you didn't fully feel like you fit in because they were overwhelmingly white. And I remember when I first started doing corporate DEI work, 
around 2006 or 2007. And this was a real division between the sort of the LGBTQ affinity group that existed at the time and every other affinity group, which was race-based. So my question to you is, how can white communities better understand what's needed from them to continue centering more marginalized folks, more historically underrepresented folks to make the changes that we need to see in society that makes it better for all of us? I mean, that's a really big question. And I think especially I want to name that while I exist in many spaces trying to advance justice for folks of color, I wouldn't consider myself a specific like race educator or you know DEI specialist in race, mostly because I'm not indigenous or black. And I think it's really crucial for me to have had more lived experience in those spaces if I were to be an expert in that. So I want to name that. I do think that the invitation into any community or allyship to any community with whom you don't share an identity has to come from a self-examination first. And what I mean by that is we can do the things to marginalized communities like, you know, call trans people the right name and pronouns, call us the right or put us in the right bathrooms or allow us to, I don't know, have the healthcare we need, right? We can do all these logistical things. And these are big, amazing, important things. They're baseline, actually not amazing, but they're really important things. But if we don't actually shift our own beliefs about trans people, if we don't actually understand understand that gender is more expansive than what we were trained to believe from childhood, if we don't actually shift how we see people and don't shove them into these boxes all the time, that change that we make is just going to be up here, right? It's just going to be surface level. It's not going to be the change that's actually going to shift forwards in the world. So when I wrote my book, one of the things I thought about a lot was how do we actually get people to be involved in this conversation from a personal standpoint? And part of that is what we've already talked about, which is reminding people that gender is not just a trans issue. It's an everybody issue, right? It's an everybody experience. But also when we think about allyship, we should start with thinking about how we understand ourselves. So when we think about, for example, race, I've had really powerful and difficult and painful conversations with my dad, who is the white parent. He's cisgender, he's straight, he's white, he's a man, he worked in the corporate world for a long time, so if you want to write down privilege, he's got most of them, right? And our experiences in the world are very different. I have a lot of privilege per his privilege because he's my dad, but I'm also not walking the world as a cisgender white straight man, right? And some of the conversations we've had that have been really difficult have been at the core about how he shows up to a space where he doesn't even understand he's showing up to a space with privilege. And I talk about that in the book. You can read the, you know, and you all have already read it, but for listeners, you can read the a fight <laughs> or many fights where I have screamed at my dad. I don't necessarily recommend the screaming, but the core of it was trying to get him to understand that when he shows up to his space, there's entitlement he's already got just by showing up there. And he doesn't have to do anything but breathe and have that entitlement. I mean, honestly, he doesn't even have to breathe. But I think that understanding, right, you can't always like put that in a list and be like, here, this is how you're an ally, right? This is how you should make a corporate DEI plan, right? You have to actually get into the meat of it. And that's what I hoped to do through my book is really call people into that self-examination first. I think it really illuminates something that we've talked about and believe in too on the show. Like, you know, some of the psychology says you change societies by changing the rules and expectations, but that only goes so far. You also have to have the bottom up change to meet it because you need to know why, because the why is going to sustain you through the difficult conversations, the fights, the pushback, the holding of the boundaries, because those are not fun. And if you don't know why you're doing it, you're not going to do it, generally speaking. I think along the same lines, a lot of our listeners identify as feminist, I think, I'm guessing. Most of our listeners identify as feminist. And we've made a point on the show before about how feminism has really historically centered white women and how that is not helping all women. And in your book, you talk about this subgroup of feminists called TERFs. 
the trans exclusionary radical feminists who are really working to push trans women out of women's sports. There's a lot of people who still have feelings about this and who would say they're feminists who are sticking up, I'm air quoting, sticking up for women here, which is not right. So could you do a quick takedown of the arguments here? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So one of the things I want to start with is that a lot of folks have tried to actually remove the the word feminist from the sort of acronym TERF, being that if you are going to exclude certain women on the basis of them not being, quote, woman enough, it's not particularly feminist. And if we really think about the core tenets of feminism, which is that women are more than their reproductive capacity and should not be reduced only to their reproductive capacity, then by default, you actually going completely against feminism to exclude trans women, because in order to exclude trans women, you must reduce cisgender women to their reproductive capacity. So I want to just name that that's just like a sort of logic game that I think a lot of people miss. And when we start segmenting, okay, this is woman and this isn't, and these are the things that make you woman enough, we're policing womanhood, which actually segues right into my answer to your question. A lot of people have a lot of feelings about trans women or trans girls in the girls or women's category. And a lot of it, the nice parts of it, I'm going to say nice in, in air quotes, the not clearly transphobic of just people being like, well, they're men, right? That's just transphobia. But the parts that people try to engage science with are the ones of, that say something like, well, biological differences and biological sex and all these kinds of things. And one of the things people miss is that biological sex is not binary. People think that there's two very neat little categories that we can tie a little bow around and box up and be like, okay, this is male and this is female. And that's it. The reality is that nothing in our biology is that simple, right? There's not two eye colors, two hair textures, two skin colors, right? There's a wide breadth of variety. Um, Now, are there sort of two main phenotypes, two main presentations of biological sex? Yes, but there are modes. So there are common outputs, but there's lots of diversity within those outputs and between them. So it's actually not binary, that's bimodal. That's why, again, bimodal, there's two modes, um, two common outputs, but there's lots of diversity within them. The reason I'm saying this is because if that's the case, how can we evenly segment them into two categories and be like, this is woman enough and this is not? We can't. Um, and so there's a lot of complexity there. And when we start to police the women's category and say, okay, but the trans women can't compete, we actually have to know which ones are trans, which means we have to test them to figure out who's trans so then we can then kick them out. And when you start testing women for who's trans enough, you're actively legally enforcing the policing of every single woman's body which is, in my mind, the exact opposite of feminism, right? And they're doing this to children, right? To little girls. And a lot of the bills that have been passed to ban trans kids from sports are also legalizing genital inspections for kids. So they're looking at little kids' genitalia to make sure they can kick around a soccer ball with their friends about fairness, right? It's all in fairness. But the reality is this is an overreach, a massive overreach, a violation of bodily autonomy, of privacy, and again, a very misogynistic endeavor that enforces through patriarchal violence to investigate women's bodies constantly. The last part is that, and there's, there's so much more here, but this is, you said, you said the short takedown. <laughs> the last part is that it's also intertwined with racism because who gets access to womanhood? You even said it about who was centered in feminism. It was white women and white feminism. The same thing happens when we think about who is allowed womanhood in sports. It's often white women and it's skinny white women. It's feminine quote white women. It's the sort of gentle, beautiful white woman, because as soon as you get too masculine or too strong, or too athletic, you're accused of being a man. And oftentimes that goes right hand in hand with anti-blackness because the folks who are most often accused of not being woman enough are black women. Serena Williams, Kasia Semenya, Simone Biles, Shakari Richardson, the list goes on, right? 
So there's a lot of actually intersectional oppression that occurs when we think about the exclusion of trans women from women's category. And most of it has nothing to do with the fight against trans athletes. Most of that fight has nothing to do with trans people or sports or fairness. It's 100% about control. Thank you for that answer. Well, first of all, that's like the most clear explanation that I have heard of that. And so I love it. And I also love that you were naming the systems and that it is about control fundamentally, first and foremost, and especially when it comes to children, you know, that is such an important piece. And so thank you for really emphasizing that as well. Sure. Well, there's no secret that we have all that, you know, the 23 states that have banned trans kids from playing sports also are the ones leading the charge against reproductive justice, right? That's not an accident. That's the same politicians writing the same bills. They don't care about fairness. They don't care about women. If they cared about women, they wouldn't take away mostly women's rights, right? So it's completely, I honestly, ironic, almost funny if it wasn't taking away people's rights the way that it is. I totally agree. I want to stay with children and states, actually, for a second, because with more and more states, right, those 23 states, among others, limiting gender-affirming care for children, which is you make clear in the book is not usually about surgery, but really giving access to puberty blockers, which are reversible. Other states may be seeing an increase in people moving in to get care for their children, because if you're a parent who wants the best for your children and, and wants to support them, you've got to get out of those states, right? But that makes it increasingly difficult to get care, for example, for trans kids where Sarah lives in Colorado because there aren't enough resources now to go around because now we're dealing with an increasingly smaller pool. So what support do you think the LGBTQ community should be putting in place to support these families? You know, it's tough because part of my answer is like, it shouldn't have to be us, right? The, the LGBTQ plus community should not have to be the ones showing up for the LGBTQ plus community who's losing all these rights. It should be our allies, right? And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is really a reminder that we all have stake in this fight because when they're attacking the autonomy of one, they're attacking the autonomy of all. And people think that they're exempt. They think, oh, trans people are over there losing their rights and it's not going to affect us. Well, people had a really big wake-up call when Roe versus Wade was overturned, right? That was a huge thing. Everybody's like, oh, they're not going to stop here. They didn't start there either, right? They started with a massive attack on trans rights and trans autonomy, but people didn't see that as valid. So I think that we have to understand the bigger picture and we have to activate as if it is true that everybody is involved because everybody is. In terms of specific things, I mean, one of the things I've seen people do is really activating around companies that are providing healthcare that are outside of like the traditional healthcare model. So there's a, a company called Folks Health that I work with, which is a telehealth company that provides HRT and other gender affirming care to trans and non-binary individuals across the country in states where they're where they have licenses. And it's it's telehealth, which is awesome. So I actually get my testosterone through them. And that's great because I I know the doctors are affirming because the whole business is about being affirming as opposed to me going to like a doctor that I have to figure out like, do you actually think I'm a like I'm a real person? Like do you want to believe me about my identity. But the problem is that's 18 plus because there's just so many issues with minors right now and I'm being able to provide care to minors. So part of it, I think, is making sure that, you know, companies like Folks Health can survive in this climate. The other part is really activating to fight these bills, right? And to speak out against these bills and make sure that people are understanding that gender-affirming care is not mutilating children, is not hurting children, that in fact, withholding gender-affirming care, which has been shown to be life-saving and has been approved by every major medical association as appropriate um, and age-appropriate specifically, right? That withholding that care is child abuse. It's so true. And I'm so glad you said those words. That is absolutely true. And I hope we take this seriously. And I, you know, you mentioned the word practical and, and practical tips. Can we get practical for a second here? Because 
first of all, we love and use in almost every anti-bias conversation and event that Misasha and I host the tip that when something feels wrong or something sort of someone makes a joke, not joke, someone says something inappropriate, our go-to phrase that we teach everybody is, what do you mean by that? And so when you wrote it in your book, I was like, yes, yes, I love that you suggest it too. Along the lines of practicalities, a short list of what you should not say to and about transgender people. Don't say, you don't look transgender, or, well, I never would have known. Don't say, you pass so well. Don't ask, what were you born as? Don't ask, what's your real name? Or, what was your name before, your birth name? Don't say, you're so attractive for a transgender person. Or, but why are you more attractive than I am? That's so unfair. That's a real one I've gotten multiple times. Oh it's always a weird comment to receive. <laughs> like, Hopefully that you, one's obvious. How do you control your face when you hear that? It's like... I don't oh. know. I just look at them. That one really shows the underlying belief system of I think trans people shouldn't be attractive and how dare they have more access to masculinity or femininity than I do as a non-trans person, right? There's this very base indignance and they think they're providing a compliment, but it really is showing that they thought that there's no possible way I could be attractive. I'm not even focused on whether or not I'm attractive. Like that's not why people transition to be attractive. <laughs> we transition so we can live, but it's just such a, it's a fascinating exposure of people's bias. That's a really good point. I think it's a lot of like projection of people's insecurities, their fears, their feelings, what they notice about themselves and they want they compare. You know, I have a lot of empathy for people who compare themselves to me or to others. And I also think that's why we all should be investigating ourselves because it all starts with how we see ourselves, how we understand our own gender, how we relate to our own gender. And then we can be more grounded and not say things like this to other people. I think that's such an important point. Don't say, oh, you're even more masculine or feminine than I am. Don't ask, did you get the surgery? Don't ask, are you going to do the full or complete or whole transition? Don't ask, what surgeries are you going to have? Or are you on or will you take hormones? Or do you still have a vagina or penis? Or any other question about our body parts and genitals? Oh, wait, I just want to interject because I actually was reading this on a plane and I laughed out loud at this part because <laughs> the subheading says, if you don't ask strangers what their penises or clitorises look like, you shouldn't not ask a trans person about their genitals either. If you do ask strangers this, you might want to reassess your priorities. I loved that. That's one that I thought about a lot because it's something that trans people get asked very frequently. I will say less so in the recent years than before. I think people have discovered that that maybe they shouldn't ask people about people's genitals, but I still get it. I'll still get it every once in a while. And people are very curious and I get it. And as I write in the book, you're, it's okay for you to be curious, but because you're curious, that doesn't demand an answer. If you're curious, be curious, right? right. And then also maybe it reassess your priorities if it really matters to you what my genitals are. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say you need a penis to be a man. Or, you need a vagina to be a woman. Don't ask, when did you choose or when did you decide to be transgender? Don't say, this is so hard for me. Or, I'm just so used to your dead name or old pronouns, so it's hard to change. Don't say, but you were such a pretty girl or handsome man. Or, why are you destroying your man or womanhood? Or, you're ruining your body. Don't ask, can I see a before picture? Don't ask, do you think you are just going through a phase? Or 
Does a part of you think this might be coming up now because it's trendy? Don't say, you're too masculine, too feminine. You're too tall, too short. Your voice is too high, too low. Don't ask, have you thought this through? Don't say, this comes out of nowhere. What do you mean you're trans? You've always liked being a girl or boy. Don't ask, wait, aren't you just gay? Don't say, you're not a real man or a real woman. Don't say, so I can't talk to trans people about anything? That last one was what I always like to close when I give lists of don't talk about, because when I say that, people are always like, what can I talk about then? And I'm like, if these questions are the only things you can come up with to talk about with trans people, again, maybe time to reassess the priorities, because we are so much more than just our transitions and our genitals and pictures of us from before we transitioned. I'm so glad we did this. And thank you for indulging us in this, because what I really loved about your book is how practical it is, not only from, you know, this is what don't you shouldn't be asking, but also all of the stories that you tell. I think that that is so powerful to read and also so important for people to take with them, right? I'm going to jump ahead in your book because I want to talk about the end of it. And this is kind of a spoiler alert, but not really. You should read the book, everyone. Because the story you tell at the end about telling your Korean grandparents, um, that to me, well, I, I could viscerally feel this, like thinking about my own Japanese grandparents, like I could feel that, right? But that was one of the most powerful stories of for me, in terms of intersectionality, but also really family and acceptance and love. Can you talk about that story in that moment for you, especially for our biracial or Asian listeners who may have been feeling exactly how you felt when you were on that drive, like heading to your grandparents' house? It's one of my most favorite stories, and I, I will jump to say it's one of everybody else's favorite stories, too, is the, the tale of how I told my Catholic immigrant Korean grandmother that I'm transgender. And I always actually close my speeches. When I do speeches, I close with the story because I think it's a really good reminder of how to step in, right? And step in with not a lot of reason except for love, right? How many of my grandmother is somebody, I grew up five minutes away from her house. My Korean family moved to the U.S. in the late 1960s. And my, my Korean grandmother is actually, she was from North Korea. And so she'd grown up in North Korea. And then during the war, right before the war, they escaped from North Korea. And they walked, her and all of her immediate family walked from North Korea to South Korea. And I share that not because it's necessarily immediately relevant to the story, but it's about her, my history, right? And, and very strong womanhood that carried me not only from North Korea to South Korea, but then also all the way to the United States. And my many my Korean grandmother is the first of her family to do that, to have left the Korean peninsula in 45 plus generations. So there's a lot of power and history that lies within her and my family on that side. I was the first of that family to be born in the United States as well. The reason I'm painting this picture is because I have a strong allegiance to my Korean family and that ancestry feels deeply, deeply important to me. And there's so much emotion that I've had in connection with them. And so when I realized that I was trans, it felt like I could destroy this, this connection that I have with them. And I've always been somebody that has been respected by my grandmother because I was good in school. I had been recruited to swim for Harvard. So I'd succeeded athletically. And also, you know, you can think about the stereotypical Korean, you know, parent and grandparent. She's thrilled that I'm going to Habadu, Harvard for anybody who doesn't speak Korean accent. And so there was so much pride in my experience. But then I had this thing, this secret that I thought could ruin it all. 
you know? And so carrying this with me, I think was painful for a long time. I carried my lesbian identity in secrecy for many years because I didn't want to share it with her. And I thought, you know what? I don't have to until I marry a woman and maybe I'll somehow marry a man and it will be okay. So when I came out as trans and, and I knew I had to share it because there wasn't this ability to share my gender as I could my sexuality, I was so afraid to tell her. And I actually told everybody first, I even did a Facebook post and I blocked her on Facebook and I, I sort of slowly told my community and then I, I, I really labored hard in writing this letter to figure out how to tell her. And I'm going to fast forward because I want you to read the book to get all the color in the story, listeners. But essentially when I come out to her, she just says, okay. She's like, I knew that already. And we're all kind of like, what do you mean you knew that? <laughs> How do you know that? But her response was so simple. She said, okay, great. So I have two grandsons, you and your brother. And there's one stipulation I have. And that one stipulation is that daughters in Korean culture take care of their parents. And because your mother has no daughters anymore, you still must take care of your parents, Skylar. And of course, I agreed. And I think that story to me is this is powerful proof that people can often surprise you, that cultural divides do exist. And it's not that we should invalidate them, but, but we can also give people a lot more faith, I think, than sometimes we imagine that we can. And I think for me, that risk that I took to share it with her was so important. And I always encourage people to step into this journey with their authenticity and their priorities first. And that doesn't mean telling everybody. That means doing what you want to do. Because in that moment, I knew I had to tell her because I needed to. And the outcome was going to be the outcome. And thank God it was a good one, right? But I think it would have been what I needed to do regardless. I love that you shared that story. One personal question for me, you know, you're clear in your book that the work you do is not easy, right? The abuse at hurl that's hurled at you is often painful and you have to work to claim your joy. And I think there's a lot understatement going on in the world right now. And I think a lot of folks, us included, have to work harder than they used to, to also see the joy, see the light and hold on to some sort of hope. So what do you do you know, because you have chosen to step into this work. Trans folks are not responsible for educating anybody else. You have chosen to be an educator and to put yourself through these emotional experiences because they're not just educating out there. They're also very personal when people come to you. So what do you do? What's your practice? What do you do to remind yourself of joy? And what do you suggest other people do to tap back into that for themselves too? Yeah. Well, I really, I'm glad you spotlit choice because I think that Sometimes we don't feel like we have choices. And for many different people, there are different access to different choices, right? Based on privilege. And I want to name that I have a lot of privilege in different ways that allows me access to choice, right? I can choose to do this work and I can choose not to, right? If I wanted today, you know, today to be like, I don't want to do this anymore. I could stop, right? Um, I have enough financial freedom and I have the privilege to find other jobs that I could feasibly stop. Spiritually, I could not, but logically, logistically, I could. And that privilege, I think, actually does lend me the space to actively continuously choose that. But I think that mindset, if anybody can like learn that mindset of I'm actively choosing to do what I'm doing, I think that's really important because what it really does is it centers us in our own agency. Where can we make the choices to do what we want to do? And there's sometimes we can't make choices, right? Because I've chosen to do this. And in order to do this, I have to do all these other things, right? And then we have to commit. But we also want to, I want to remind myself that these are the, the ways I've oriented my life. And that's how I found my agency. And can I see all the other things as part of actually my agency? So part of it perspective, I think. The other part is is really making sure to take care of myself. And I think that is like such a hot button, annoying, roll your eyes phrase of like, have boundaries. Like, how do you have boundaries? 
And I actually teach a boundaries workshop. And I don't, I'm not saying to say that I'm perfect at it by any means because I'm not, but I think about them a lot. And especially as I've stayed in this work now more than eight years and from when I was 18, 19 until now I'm 27, I really haven't ever been a professional without doing this work and without learning these boundaries. And there's sort of like, I would say, two-ish arenas in which these boundaries are the most important. I like I like tangible skills. So I'm going to go back to my tangible tactile skills. The first is that when I'm in an educating place, what I really want to do in terms of boundaries is separate my work, so what I'm doing, versus who I am, my identity, right? So work versus self. I want to separate those, which means that when people have feedback, when they hurl insults at me online, when I get emails like I did this morning that said really horrible things that I don't need to repeat, right? Um, wishes for me to die, all that kind of stuff. I need to separate the feedback I'm getting and I can treat it as feedback from who I am. So I'll just give you an example, right? Like I said, the, the email I got this morning, there was one that was like, go kill yourself, whatever. It, lots more color, but we're going to reduce it to that. And I could read that and think, oh, I'm not worthy. I shouldn't live here. You know, I don't belong here because that's kind of what this person is saying. Or I could think about it in a different way and say, gosh, this means that my interview on NPR yesterday or whenever it was, right, reached people that it needed to reach right? And that's a data point for me. And can I separate right self, who I am from the work that I'm doing? So that is a really important thing. And it's a constant practice that has become more of a reflex to me now. But it's really, I think, key in my mental sanity. The other part is knowing when to say no and knowing when to say yes. So I said two things. The first is that is that boundary. The second one is I think it's really hard for me to say no. And I say yes too frequently. But sometimes I also don't say yes to the right things. And sometimes the right things are rest right? Sometimes it's like, do you want to take a vacation? No, I'm too much work, right? Sometimes it's saying yes, right, to that vacation. So I don't know how to implement that for everybody. But for me, it means taking a step back and looking at what suffers when I don't maintain my boundaries. So it's not actually like where are the boundaries, because I think those are so changing and fleeting and confusing that defining the boundaries themselves is too hard. But if I say, okay, I need to sleep eight hours a night. I need to eat three meals a day. Uh, I need to spend at least, you know, two to three date nights with my partner a week or whatever it might be. I need to walk my dog, right? These are my, my non-negotiables a day. If I'm not doing those, something's suffering, right? And some boundary is not being upheld. So how can I go back and say, okay, so what is in the way of me not sleeping for eight hours? What is in the way of not eating my three meals? And that helps me orient myself in a way that I actually can care for the tangible things I have to do every day to take care of myself. And to me, that's a lot easier than being like, what are my boundaries, <laughs> right? So I love what, how tangible you were about boundaries. And I hate that you have to create these boundaries because of, you know, what people email you or what they say. But I think that's so important, that division, starting with the first one, right, between who you are and your work. Because I, I think that is something that we take for granted if you're working in a different profession, right? There is a clear boundary. And I think when it comes to discussions of identity or, you know, anything that has that sort of overlap, then it, the assumption is it's just one. And so I think that what you said is really powerful and a really great reminder. I know I needed to hear that um, today as well. And also, you know, the yes and no, like that is such a, a really important thing. So thank you for sharing that um, with our audience as well, our listeners. So our show is called Dear White Women for a reason, because we do you know, talk to and our whole goal is to help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism and really think about how do we make the world better for everyone. So we asked this to a lot of our guests, and I want to ask you, if you could ask 
the cisgender heterosexual white women listening to this show right now to do one thing differently after they, you know, finish listening to this interview, what would that be? It's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is to separate out the experience of misogyny from the understanding that they also have privilege. I find that a lot of white women will will use their experience as, not use, but put the experience of misogyny as the forefront of their fight in feminism and not recognize that there's a lot of other people who are also marginalized and that they actually have privilege over because they've had this experience of being marginalized as women. And none of this is to take away from the marginalization that white women experience as women. They experience it. The world is very patriarchal and it sucks in many ways to to be a woman, right? Period. doesn't matter what color your skin is. And I really want white women to be able to hold that and hold that pain and be able to say, yes, I've experienced misogyny and it's horrible. And I haven't experienced anti-blackness. I haven't experienced transphobia. I haven't experienced queer phobia. And if I'm skinny, I haven't experienced fat phobia. If I'm able-bodied, I haven't experienced, you know, ableism. We need to be able to parse these out and understand that they exist together. And they can affect people differently, right? That intersectionality is the thing that I think most people are missing. And TERFs, absolutely, the entire TERF ideology completely misses intersectionality. So I think to summarize, I want white women, dear white women, please understand that your experiences of misogyny are absolutely valid and should be addressed. And in that fight, we need to address the ways other forms of systemic oppression affect other marginalized groups. Love it. What else is there that we haven't asked that you want to make sure people know about? Hmm. Well, I did write a whole book about all these things, so there's probably a lot more. But I would say, you know, one of the centerpieces of anti-trans rhetoric is playing on very valid, very core human desires that are based in love and fear, right? So let's just go with the whole protect women, right? That's a very core tenant of anti-trans rhetoric, protect women. But the thing is, Protecting women is awesome. We should protect women. But the way that they go about it, that's what's problematic. And so what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we can get everybody to rally around protect women. Then all we got to do to get our goal of discrimination in place is to inject a fear of, well, trans women threaten women. Boom. Then we have everybody on board because we've got the fear and we've got the love of protecting women and the fear of trans women being a threat. And we get the outcome we want, banning trans women from wherever we're thinking that they shouldn't be. And what happens there is we actually miss that the problem isn't trans people because there's no evidence that supports that. And we can go through all the data points in the book that the actual problems that we're fighting are usually created by the people who are creating all these anti-trans bills. So people will say, well, you know, if we let trans women into the bathroom, then men are going to go into the women's bathroom and men are going to hurt women. Okay, well, then who are we afraid of? We're actually afraid of men. And we're probably afraid of the very men saying those things and pointing the fingers at trans people. And so what we're doing right now is we're making trans people pay for the harm that cis men largely perpetuate, right? That the patriarchy has created. And that's a big fallacy of of a lot of anti-trans rhetoric is that it's forcing everybody to be pitted against trans people when the true problems are patriarchy and largely cis white men who are perpetuating all these problems. So I really want people to understand that sort of gap that anti-trans rhetoric has just smoothed right over because if we don't understand that, we're actively being manipulated. And that's why it's working. That's why it's incredibly effective. It is actively manipulating most of the American public. Skylar, if people want to find you, where should they go follow you and find you aside from buying your book? 
Yes, you should definitely check out the book, He, She, They, How We Talk About Gender and Why It Matters. You can get it anywhere you buy books. And if you want a signed copy, they've got them at Book People in Austin and at All She Wrote in Somerville, Massachusetts. You can find me on Instagram at Pink Manta Ray, pink like the color, Manta Ray um, like the animal. And you can find me on Threads, the same place. Um, you can find me on Facebook, the same handle. And you can find me on TikTok, the same handle. And unfortunately on X or Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days, it's SB underscore Pink Manta Ray. Love it. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>